I want to say thank you. Uh, thank you for being kind, thoughtful, and generous to me and my family ever since we moved from Pittsburgh back to Lancaster County. You have welcomed us. You have honored us. Uh, you have blessed us. I get to study God's word and proclaim it because you support me in that. And I don't take that that lightly. You support my family as well. You give me time away to rest and to relax and to rejuvenate. And uh, I believe that you take care of us. And then there's Christmas. Then there's Pastor's Appreciation Month. There's the baby shower last Sunday. There's free babysitting, little thoughtful gifts along the way like a Furby and uh, sugar cookies and... Gifts for the kids, and you even let me borrow your deep fryer for Thanksgiving. Thank you. And uh, you've encouraged us through emails, through little cards and notes and words, and you've had us into your homes. Um, You've given us the gift of your friendship. That's a precious gift to us. And you work hard, and you invest in our church. And, And I want you to know, from my heart to yours, that we deeply love you. My family deeply loves Jerusalem Church. And uh, you, are, you are and have been one of the biggest blessings in our lives. Um, and I know that I don't tell you that enough as your pastor. Well, you didn't have to do any of that. You don't have to do anything that you do to me. You didn't have to give me the opportunity to be your pastor, but you did. And your kind-heartedness has opened the door for spiritual growth in me. Uh, Inside of me as a man and as a husband and as a father and as a friend and as a pastor. And so your kindness has actually helped me to serve Christ. And for that, I am very, very grateful. Generosity, along with the gratitude that it excites, so often generates greater works in the one who receives it. I want you to get that. Make sure you get it generosity along with the gratitude that that generosity excites within us so often generates greater works in the one who receives the generosity. Have you ever received something so generous? Maybe it was a gift. Maybe it was something that someone did uh, for you and you responded like this. Wow, you didn't need to do this. Has that ever happened? You You didn't need to do this. And you were totally blown away at, at what they did. And maybe the person responded, I, I know I didn't have to do it, but I wanted to. I wanted to do it. Jesus Christ has done more for you than anyone else could ever do, has ever done. He has given you more in himself than anyone could ever give you. His grace exceeds amazing. You don't deserve his grace. You have not earned his grace. You are not worthy of his grace. Yet he pours out his grace and blessing and favor upon you because he wants you to be happy in him. He wants you to be happy in Him. He wants you to have His joy in you. And He wants you to adore Him for it. But He wants more. Jesus wants His joy to overflow from your life. To overflow from your heart into the lives of other people. So that God gets glory and those people are radically blessed. 
God's generosity to you through Christ is meant to generate greater works in you, not as a way to pay God back. You can't pay God back. We can't pay God back for all that he has done for us, but as a way to express your love for him. I just want to gush his joy into other people's lives because I love him and I want them to experience that. And so the aim and the application of our sermon, of the sermon this morning, is really simple. Number one, believe what Jesus has done for you. Number two, rejoice in the grace that you have received through Christ. And number three, joyfully lead other people toward the same joy you have received and experienced in Christ. Believe this message is true. Rejoice that this message is true. And invite others into the truth so they can believe and rejoice and invite others in too. This is the life that God has called you to live. Jesus' time with Pilate was uh, quite an ordeal to say the least. Pilate kept going in and out of his headquarters, fooling with the Jews and trying to make up his mind about Jesus. In John 18, 29, Pilate went out to the Jews. In John 18, 33, Pilate went back in and called Jesus inside. In John 18, 38, he went back outside. In John 19, 1, he went back in and he had Jesus flogged. In John 19, 4 and 5, Pilate went out again and brought Jesus out. In John 19, 9 through 11, he entered his headquarters again and asked Jesus more questions. In John 19, 13, he brought Jesus out again and made his final judgment and delivered Jesus over for crucifixion. This trial was a mess. In and out, back and forth. And note that throughout this entire travesty of justice, Pilate declared three times, I find no guilt in him. Yet Jesus took it. No retaliation, no threats. He just took it. He did it for God. And my friend, he did it for you. He was flogged for you. He was flogged for you. Verse 1 says that Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Jesus was severely beaten by a scourge or a whip. Now, Roman scourgers were composed of a handle And uh, the leather ropes were attached to this handle, and the leather ropes were inlaid with bone or metal or lead so that the whip would tear open the flesh. The Romans had three levels of flogging, fustigatio, flagellatio, and verberatio. Fustigatio was for uh, minor offenses, and it came with a warning, you know, watch out, nah-nah. And uh, that was the least severe. Flagellatio was for more serious crimes. And uh, was more brutal. And then there was verberatio, was for major crimes. I mean, these were intense crimes against Rome, and it was the most severe, and it was gory, and it was bloody, and it was a beating. And it commonly accompanied crucifixion. I read this, quote, Scourging was a horribly cruel act in which the victim was stripped, tied to a post, and beaten by several torturers, i.e. soldiers who alternated when exhausted. Such flogging often preceded execution in order to weaken and dehumanize the victim, end of quote. The beatings were so severe that the victim's veins, muscles, bones, and entrails were often exposed. Sometimes verberaccio was fatal. Now, some good scholars like D.A. Carson, who I greatly respect, and Andreas Kostenberger advocate that Jesus was flogged twice. 
For various plausible reasons, they propose that Jesus records, or that John rather, records his first flogging before his sentence, fustigatio, or Jesus' lighter punishment. And then they propose that Matthew and Mark recorded his second flogging after his sentence, verberatio, where they beat Jesus so severely that he was too weak to carry his own cross. But a lot of solid biblical scholarship uh, accepts just one flogging. And there is good reason to believe that it was only one. Either way, Jesus suffered verberatio, the most excruciating form of scourging. When I was a kid, I, I grew up in a Christian home, and we would watch the, uh, the Jesus of Nazareth miniseries on television. Maybe some of you saw it back in the 80s uh, or maybe early 90s. NBC, actually, NBC <laughs> broadcast this five times during 1981 and 1990. And uh, the flogging and the crucifixion scene, scene, scenes uh, were actually historically and biologically inaccurate. It actually was kind of pathetic, honestly. In the miniseries, Jesus wasn't very bloody. He hardly had any scratches on him. And I guess, honestly, when you think about television and in that era, it probably was to keep it PG when the actual event was worse than rated R. And so maybe Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, uh, it probably brings it a little bit closer to reality, but no movie at all that has ever been made can capture the horror of Christ's suffering. Could Jesus have avoided it? Not if he was going to save you. Not if he was going to save you. The only way God could save you, the only way was for his son to come suffer and die. That was it. That was the plan. To die for you. So understand what his beating and ultimately then his crucifixion did for you. Isaiah 53, 5 says, with his stripes we are healed. Stripes means blows with a whip. They beat him. Scourgings. And people can actually be healed through the beating of another. You deserve that flogging. You deserve worse. The wrath of God, yet Jesus was flogged for you so that you could be healed. Next, he was wounded for you. Wounded for you to increase his physical pain. Verse 2 says that the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on, on his head. In verse 3, they struck him with their hands. This was nothing short of brutal injustice. Now, if you take a moment to just flash back in your mind to Genesis in the garden, Adam and Eve, they failed, they took the fruit, and God told Adam this, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Now at this moment, back in Jesus, you have these sin-induced thorns cutting into the flesh of the Son of God. Now, there were many thorny plants in Palestine. We don't know exactly what plant it was. There's been, a, uh, I think, at least two suggestions of what that is. But the crown, either way, was very painful and dug into his head while each insulting blow increased his pain. Those thorns were our curse for our sins. We deserved those thorns. And more than that, Jesus 
wore the thorns for us. Jesus bled instead. In addition to his wounds, he was mocked for you. If flogging wasn't enough, the soldiers added insult to injury. The crown of thorns and the purple robe were pranks to present Jesus as a parody of royalty. They shamed him. They came up to him jeering, Hail, King of the Jews! Hail, King of the Jews! And it was this contemptuous salute to him. Now, have you ever felt shame from someone trying to make you look stupid? You ever feel shamed? You might know what ridicule tastes like. Maybe not like this, but you might know how it stings. When I was in junior high, I, uh, I came under some pretty intense uh, ridicule during basketball tryouts. I wasn't very good in junior high, maybe ever, <laughs> um, honestly, if we're having an open moment together. I still, still can't do it right. But during that time, it beat me down. And I'd go home and just cry to my parents. Words, they cut deep. They leave scars. Lasting scars, cutting words often ruin people with insecurity or depression or just an overwhelming sense of revenge. And none of the words took Jesus to any of those places. Jesus had incredible self-control. If you think about it, think of what he could have done to those men in that moment. But he withheld. He took their blows. Now remember what Peter wrote. This is striking. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Instead of feeling insecure, instead of feeling depressed, instead of being overwhelmed with revenge... Jesus just trusted God, trusted the justice of God to come through. Restraint like that, when you get close and you see what it is, it leaves us asking, why? I mean, why? How? How is that even possible? But we know why and we know how. Every second of his restraint was loving obedience to God and war against sin to accomplish our salvation. How did he do it? He was full of the Spirit. He walked by the Spirit. Jesus, the Son of God, endured humiliation because the Spirit of God empowered him to glorify God through radical obedience. In his humiliation is the glory of God. In his humiliation is the beautiful redemption of God's people. Next, he was shamefully exhibited for you. Shamefully exhibited for you. Pilate made Jesus a spectacle. Verse 4, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So you can imagine Jesus staggering out, wearing the demeaning crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate added, Behold the man. I wonder how he said that. There Jesus stood, bloody, marred, A spectacle for the crowd. It was a gross scene, no doubt. And it seems likely that Pilate flogged Jesus to somehow satisfy the bloodlust of the Jewish leaders. 
Perhaps the flogging would be enough. Maybe crucifixion could be averted somehow. After all, Pilate was still advocating that Jesus was innocent. And so when he said, behold the man, it seems as if he's, he's saying, look at him. He's been sufficiently punished. We beat him. Is, is, is he really a threat? Isn't this enough? Now imagine this from the perspective of Jesus. He was a man who could feel nerves, bone, flesh. With his body torn, he stood there in pain, overlooking a crowd that loathed him, that wanted him dead. What was he thinking at that moment? I don't know. I don't know what he was thinking. But maybe he looked out on the crowd, and maybe he thought at that moment what he later voiced on the crowd, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know. I don't know what he thought. What we do know is that he entrusted himself entirely to God. What happens inside of you, inside of your heart, when you hear what Jesus endured? What happens? What's going on right now when you hear about what he endured? Let it not be indifference. Let it not be monotony. Let it not be sadness. Let it be joy. Look upon his shameful exhibition with joy. For his shameful parade was for God's glory and your greatest joy. What happened next is unsettling. He was loathed for you, loathed for you. The eyes of the crowd were on him. And verse 6 says, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, this is very real. They looked and they saw that he was ravaged by Rome. They saw him with their eyes. They're looking at the bleeding and beaten up Jesus. They saw a grotesque scene, a grotesque man. Was there an ounce of mercy anywhere to be found in their heart? No, because they screamed, screamed, crucify, crucify, kill the man. The verb used for cried out, kregazzo, meaning demanding with a loud voice or to shout, or to scream, or to yell with the possible implication of a very unpleasant sound. With venomous bursts, they shouted, Crucify! They're looking at him! Hatred was their puppeteer. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples back in the upper room in John 15? If the world hates you, Know that it hated me before it hated you. Just after that, Jesus quoted from the Psalms, and this is what he said, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. What cause did they have? What did they have? What justice was being done? None. They had no cause. He was loathed without a cause for you. For you. No one has ever shown any more love, any more determination, any more sacrifice for your advantage than Jesus Christ. No one even comes close. He was viciously rejected so he could express his vigorous love for you. After hearing their rancorous shouts, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Interesting. 
You know, Pilate seemed to be just trying to find yet another way to escape this whole thing. Just get me out of this. I just, no, don't, don't want this. Because deep down, Pilate knew Jesus did not deserve the cross. But the Jews continued their accusations. He was wrongfully alleged for you. Wrongfully alleged for you. The guilt they assigned to Jesus was alleged guilt. It wasn't actual guilt. Nothing had been proven up until this point against him. Now, at this point, I got to say, many people will say that Jesus never claimed to be God. That if you read the New Testament, he never said the words, I am God. And he actually didn't say it in those terms. Um, But a close study of the New Testament, as well as an Old Testament historical study, when you bring those things together, makes that view totally inadequate. On top of many very clever professions of divinity, one other uh, persuasive reason to believe that Jesus actually claimed to be divine was the reason why the Jewish leaders wanted him dead. He made himself the son of God. They accused him of blasphemy. They accused him of equating himself with God, so they wanted him executed. Jesus had been very clear to the leaders of Judaism. Just look at verse 7. The Jews answered Pilate, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Now, they were right about one thing. He did claim to be the Son of God. Jesus did claim divinity. But their allegation and their application of the law was mistaken because Jesus is the Son of God and therefore he did not deserve to die. Their conclusion was wrong. And so they were probably referring back to Leviticus 24, 16, which states this, their law, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Now, if Jesus is not God, if he is not divine, they should have drug him out and stoned him. That would have been justice, according to Jewish law, which God put in place. He would have been clearly an imposter, a blaspheming imposter. But Jesus is God, confirmed by his virgin birth. Miracles, teaching, and resurrection. So he wasn't blaspheming. He was actually telling the truth, which made their allegations completely ridiculous. And interesting, though, Jesus never complained about it. You don't see him in these passages just complaining, sitting around feeling sorry for himself. And why do you think that was? Jesus chose to listen to all the garbage that was being said about him and never threatened. Why? He wanted to glorify God by loving you. He did it for you. When Pilate heard that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, his blood pressure probably went up. Verse 8 says, he was even more afraid. Whoa, Son of God? And so scholars note that there was superstition in the Uh, Roman officials, and when Pilate heard the term son of God, it had a different connotation than what it would have hit the ears of of the Jews. So he hears son of God, and he likely thought, hey, Jesus is a divine man of somehow. He's got some superpower or something. I just had a guy flogged who might put some curse on me. 
And so it's making him nervous, and that's likely why he, he was more scared, because maybe vengeance was coming upon him. And isn't it interesting that Pilate is scared and Jesus isn't? Jesus is the one who is facing the Roman cross and the wrath of God. Then verse 9 says, And he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? Can you imagine that? Like, Dude, where are you from? You coming from, like, what's up? But Jesus gave him no answer. He was courageously quiet for you. You know, I need to hear this, by the way. Sometimes it shows tremendous courage to keep your mouth shut. I must be a coward because it's just blah. Then I'll keep the mouth shut, jerk. Got it, right? I'll work on that maybe this week or next. Jesus didn't defend himself much, and I say much because there is somewhat of a defense of where he was from, but he, but he wasn't you know, pushing that defense because his intent was to go to the cross. It's a very different story for someone who is trying to save their own skin, who's trying to get out of it. They plead, they appeal, they, they ask, they beg, they grovel. Jesus never did. Isaiah was spot on. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Think of all of the things that Jesus could have said and didn't. He held his tongue for you. What incredible control and calm, and conviction, and courage. All for you. What unifies these events for us is the sovereignty of God that brings it all together. What is the sovereignty of God? It is God's complete control over everything, all things. It is his determined purpose and will. It is his power to work everything according to his plan. God does whatever he wants to do. And whatever he wants to do is good. Whatever he wants to do is right. Whatever he wants to do is just and beautiful. See if you can spot God's sovereignty in verses 10 and 11. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Can you see it? Here's the point. He was given over by God for you. He was given over by God for you. I think Pilate was surprised that Jesus didn't plead for his life. Jesus was so different from every other prisoner that Pilate had encountered. Jesus never begged. He never pleaded because he was determined to go to the cross. Jesus knew what authority Pilate possessed, but he knew this sovereignty of God transcended any authority that Pilate had. 
It was God that put Pilate into office at the right time. It was God who orchestrated the details of Jesus' arrest. It was God who gave over his son to Pilate. It was God who ordained Jesus' suffering. It was God who saved you through his son's suffering. Look at verse 11 again. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above For a time, Jesus accepted Pilate's authority over him. He subjected himself to that, but it was only for a moment, and he was sure to remind Pilate that anything that he had, including his authority, was given him by God. When it says, from above, that is another way of saying, by God, from God. That's where his authority was from. God brought his son to Pilate for trial by the hands of the Jews. That was his plan. Now, there is no doubt mystery between the responsibility and free actions of man and the sovereignty of God at work and his certain will. Pilate did what Pilate wanted to do. He was not a robot. He followed his sinful nature freely in life, and he followed it in this judicial case. Yet all that Pilate possessed, including his office, including his authority, including This opportunity, this judicial case, came to him from the hand of God. Peter's sermon in Acts 2, verse 23, confirms what I'm saying. Peter said that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Yet Peter followed that up by telling the Jews, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you see the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man coming together? God determined this. God decreed this. You crucified him. Same thing in Acts 4.28, if you want to check that out later. When Jesus said, therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin, I think that he meant that Pilate did not take the initiative against Jesus, but Caiaphas did. Caiaphas and the Jews were pushing for his death. That's who was running this thing through. Um, So I think that Caiaphas is in view, although you could make the case that Judas is also in view. Pilate was deeply sinful, but Caiaphas had committed the greater sin. He was pushing this. Now, please understand what all of this means for you. God wanted to have you for himself. And so to display the glory of his mercy and his grace and his love and his kindness. To uphold justice, God gave over his son for you. The only way to have you was to exchange his perfect son for you. And that's what God chose to do. That's what he wanted to do. John 19 shows us how Jesus fulfilled Isaiah 53. Jesus has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. He was smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was chastised so that we could have peace. His scourgings have healed us and God laid on him the iniquity of us all. He did that for you. Church, listen to what Paul wrote in Romans 8, 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, 
could not do. How, we might ask? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. God does what the law can't do. You want to just pull up your boots, get ready for battle and do good to earn your way to God? Not going to happen because Jesus does what the law can't do. You can't work for it. You won't be there if you're working for it. You must receive it by faith. By grace, as a gift. Galatians 3 verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for you. Ephesians 5 2 says that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's what we're seeing in John 19. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What you see in John 19 is Jesus giving himself up. Here I am. Take me and kill me. He was turning himself in the innocent in exchange for the guilty in exchange for you. Why? Why? Why would he do this? Here's why. Jesus was determined to bring us to God. Jesus was determined to bring us to God. It was God's desire and it was God's will for you to experience his glory and joy forever. And Jesus was determined to give God exactly what he wanted. And so Jesus did whatever he had to do to get you to God. He went to bat for you. What he had to do was excruciating, but it was well worth it for him to give God his treasured people as a gift. Here, son, I'm giving you a people. I want you to redeem them. I want you to give them back to me because I want them for my own. Do you know how God feels about you? He wants you, but he had to do something in order to get you, so he slaughtered his son. Folks, if that does not mean something to you, wake up. Stop living for yourself. Stop living in sin. Trust Christ. God wants you. Or he wouldn't have slaughtered his son. We're not fooling around here. The Lamb of God was slain. Tortured. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. He didn't need to suffer Multiple times. He didn't need to go to a cross multiple times. One time, once and done, the righteous for the unrighteous, Peter writes, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, being made alive in the spirit. Jesus is the righteous. You are the unrighteous. I am the unrighteous. He suffered once for your sins in order that he might bring you to God, to glorify God and to give you Do not miss this unrivaled joy in him. Do you think your lifestyle, test this, that your lifestyle right now is yielding you the best case scenario? I wonder what in your life you're doing that you're like, man, I think this is going to give me joy, but every time it doesn't, and you come back wanting something else to fill the void, and nothing seems to be there until you look at Jesus and say, he will actually do it. He'll fill me with everything. 
This doesn't cut it anymore. I don't want that. I want him because I know what he's done for me. I'm just making an evangelistic plea to anyone who doesn't know Christ who is here right now, and I assume there are. Please come to Christ, and he will reward you with unbelievable joy. Too many people that think that they can actually get to God on their own. It's insanity. I'll just do enough good to please God. You can't. And they think that they can work themselves there, but they can't. The only way that anyone will get to God is through the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to them through faith in Christ. And that is only applied to you through faith, through faith, through faith. Christ alone can take you to God. Isn't the presence of God what you want most? Hmm. Is there anything more generous than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, suffering to take you to God? So if you're overwhelmed by God's kindness to you through Christ, if, if you are awestruck at the glorious gospel of Christ, if you see in Christ the glorious grace of God, then your response is simple. simple. Number one, believe what Jesus has done for you. Believe it with all your heart. It's not a fairy tale. It's not too good to be true. It is the glorious truth. Believe it, and you must trust that Jesus did this for you, not for other people, though he did. You have to trust it for you, that he did this for you, which means you have to admit some things about who you are and who he is. To be saved means you receive all of Christ's accomplishments by grace through faith. Number two, rejoice. Rejoice in the grace you have received through Christ. Be grateful. Be overwhelmed. Be overjoyed in what Christ has accomplished for you. It's all for you. Worship, celebrate, delight in God because he lavishes his grace on you every day. And number three, joyfully lead other people toward the same joy that you have received and experience in Christ. If you have the joy of Christ in you and you experience it every day as you walk by the Spirit, then live to help others toward the same indestructible joy that you're enjoying in Christ. Lead people to know God so they can get in on the action. Are you reading what I'm saying? Here's how you truly love your friends, and here's how you truly love your family. Come alongside of them, love them unconditionally, and do whatever you possibly can to help them have joy in Christ, which would be their greatest joy if they trusted Christ, but perhaps they will through your ministry. So keep going. In the 80s, the 1980s, the milk board had this slogan, milk It does a body good, pass it on. Milk, it does a body good, pass it on. That's good marketing. I have a marketing degree. I know that's good. And it worked for a while, and then they changed it. Christ does more than your body good. He fills us forever with unparalleled joy. Pass it on. Pass it on. One of the joys of cooking great food, I'm not a huge chef, and usually when the elders come over for Christmas and I make a dessert, it's too rich and thick for anybody to enjoy. So I really, you know, Christine has got the handle on this much better. But when you make something good, 
Isn't part of that just sitting and watching people eat it and they're like, oh, this is so good. And you're like, I know. Take a little bit more. One of the great joys of sharing Christ with others is the hope that we have that they'll taste and see that the Lord is good, that they'll get the joy that we have. You know, evangelism isn't driven by, got to grit this out and do it. Now, really, it should be an overflow of joy into the lives of others that you're like, man, you got to hear this. And then maybe someday they'll enjoy it and you'll see that and say, praise God, you're enjoying him. Now we can do this together. Now we're even closer than we were before. We have Jesus in common. Believe, rejoice, lead. Believe, rejoice, lead. Believe, rejoice, lead. Allow Christ's joy to spill over from your heart into the hearts of others. Bless people with the fruit of knowing Christ. Bless people with the fruit of having the joy of Christ in your life. Believe, rejoice, and lead. God is calling you to this church. Let's pray. God, what fantastic grace you have shown us in the story of your son. And I pray that the people of Jerusalem Church can revere him and worship him and adore him for all that he has done. His suffering was immense and it was excruciating. And God, oh, when we look upon the bloody and marred Christ and we look upon his crucifixion, we think, but he is alive again. He conquered death for me as well. So help us to look through his suffering, through the cross, through the resurrection, to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.